Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 21 and verse 1. Acts 21.1 for our message from God's timeless, eternal word this morning. Acts 21.1 will be found on page 1178. If you're using the church Bible this morning, page 1178. But in everyone's Bible, right after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John begin the New Testament, comes the book of Acts. And we want to be in Acts 21, verse 1 this morning. This morning being June 4th, 2023, our text is going to begin in Acts 21.1 and continue on down about half the chapter to verse 17. And the title of this morning's message is Paul set sail for Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul sets sail for Jerusalem. And we begin with the story of a cruise ship that was sailing past an island one day when suddenly some of the passengers noticed that a bearded man on the island had come running up to the shore of the island just screaming and waving his arms wildly. One of the passengers asked the captain, Who is that man? The captain said, I don't know, but he goes nuts every year when we pass him. (laughs) Now, by the way, do you know why the portholes on cruise ships are round? It's because if they break, they don't want the water to hit you square in the face. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, speaking of ships... And sailing. Here in Acts 21, the Apostle Paul has just finished saying a very touching goodbye to the elders of the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, the previous chapter. And now he's ready to set sail once again for Jerusalem. The story begins in Acts 21.1, where we read these words. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, from the Ephesian elders who just didn't want to let him go, they were hugging and kissing him so much, and had launched, uh, talking about, launching the ship that you read about in the very last word of chapter 20. After we were gotten from the elders and had launched the ship, 
we came with a straight course unto the island of Coos. And the day following unto the island of Rhodes, and from thence unto Patera. Now, to begin with, in verse 1 there, when it says that we were gotten away from the Ephesian elders, that tells us that the Apostle Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, is with Paul at this time. If you know your Bible, you know he kind of comes and goes with Paul as the book of Acts progresses. And verse 1 says that after they arrived on the Greek island of Coos, they set sail for another Greek island called Rhodes. And the island of Rhodes, was famous for something called the Colossus of Rhodes. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Colossus. Oh, very good. Several of you. The Colossus of Rhodes was a humongous brass idol of the Greek god Helios. And it was 108 feet tall. And that makes it the, the height of an 11-story building. And that made it the tallest man-made structure in all the world. And the reason some of these folks have heard about it is because that made it one of what they called the seven wonders of the ancient world. But... By the time the Apostle Paul got there, it had fallen down during an earthquake. And I can't help but thinking, as Paul saw the, the great God of these people just laying there on the ground, I wonder if he didn't think of the false god Dagon that Tracy read about for us in our scripture reading this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the idol that fell down before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Uh, the Phil I told you I think it's amusing that the Philistines had to keep propping their God back up. But the Colossus just lay there on the ground for centuries. And that makes me think of that old commercial where the elderly lady says, I've fallen and I can't get up. And it's pretty sad when your God falls and can't get up. But this morning, if your God is anything other than the God of the Bible, I can guarantee you that someday he's going to fall and he's going to let you down in the process. And when that happens, there ain't going to be anything funny about that. But verse 1 says that after they left Rhodes, they sailed to the island of Patera. And then 
in verses 2 and 3, it says, And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, went abroad and set forth, aboard, I'm sorry, <laughs> and set forth. Now, when we had discovered Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and that means when we came upon Cyprus, we left it on the left hand, sailed unto Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship that they were on was to unlaid her burden. Now, first of all, Cyprus, Cyprus was where Paul's old buddy Barnabas lived. So you'd think he'd stop in to say hello. <laughs> but he couldn't. Because you see, he wasn't on a, a cruise ship that was making a lot of stops in a lot of different seaports. When it says there that the ship was unlading its burden, that's talking about its cargo, folks. Paul was sailing on what you and I would call a freighter. If you had to travel by ship in those days, that's how you traveled. You'd go down to the local seaport and find a, a cargo ship that is going the same way you were going and paid the captain to take you along. So when you're reading the book of Acts and you read about Paul doing all this sailing, don't picture him like Jack on the Titanic sitting at the first class table and drinking fine wine and eating fine foods, or, or sitting at Captain Steubing's table on the love boat. How many of you remember the love boat? All right, look at all the old people here. <laughs> for, listen, for Paul, it was more like hitching a ride on a freight train than vacationing on a carnival cruise. But now next, verse 4 says that Finding disciples, we tarried there entire seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when it says that those disciples told him that through the Spirit, that means that those disciples were prophets, because only prophets spoke by the Spirit, folks. And this wasn't the first time that the Spirit warned Paul about going to Jerusalem. Back in Acts chapter 20, in your next reference, it says in um, your first reference, I should say, in verses 22 and 23, Paul said, I'm going bound in the Spirit, small s, in his own spirit, he decided to go on to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. They're gonna, they've been dogging his steps since he started in the book of Acts, and they were going to abide with him if he went to Jerusalem. 
So Paul knew in every city that he stopped in, they were uh, the, the prophets were warning him, don't go. Because if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. Bonds and afflictions are going to abide you. So here we have to ask why Paul is going to Jerusalem if the Holy Spirit of God is telling him not to. I mean, he not only seems determined to disobey God, we know he's in a big hurry to do it. Because just one chapter ago in your next reference, in Acts 20 and verse 16, it says he hasted, if it were possible, for him to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So, how come Paul is in such an all-fired panic to go somewhere that God is telling him not to go? Well, the answer to that question is found at the end of our passage here this morning. So, you'll just have to sit tight and keep your shirt on until we get there. Because right now, we have to answer another question. If Paul is in such a hurry to get there, how come verse 4 says he decided to tarry or hang out there entire for seven days? And the answer to that is that back in those days, folks, it took several days to unload a ship's cargo like it's talking about there at the end of verse 3. I mean, even today with all the cranes and, and forklifts they have, it takes two or three days to unload a ship. They didn't have those things back then. So Paul just had to, to cool his heels for a while here and wait for the ship to unload its cargo. And probably he had to wait for the ship to get reloaded with cargo because... Cargo ships back then are the same as cargo ships today. They don't sail empty. It's not profitable for them to do so. Well, Paul must have spent those seven days teaching those saints and enjoying their fellowship because it says in the next two verses back in your Bible now, in verses 5 and 6, when we had accomplished those seven days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way. They walked along with us as we were leaving, talking about those saints there, wives and children, till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. Now, let me ask you, doesn't that touching scene sound a lot like what happened when Paul went to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders at the end of chapter 20? Look back up at verse 36. Let's just read those last few verses. 
Acts 20.36 says, When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And then they accompanied him to, sh to the ship. Now there, Paul had just spent three years in Ephesus, and, and they just couldn't bear to see him go because he was so dear to them. Uh, he'd endeared himself to them during those three years. But here in chapter 21, this was Paul's first trip to Tyre. And he'd only been there for a week. So how come they're fussing over him like they've known him for three years, like the Ephesian elders? Well, you know the answer to that. It doesn't take long for grace believers to work each other their way into each other's hearts, right? You know, it really is a, a blessed tie that binds us together and our hearts together in Christian love like we sing at the end of every service. That's, that's more than just a song to us, isn't it? Well, after Paul and his company here managed to get away from that new group of believers, we'll find out what happens next, back in your Bible now, in the next two verses, beginning in verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> and when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy and saluted the brethren there, and abode with them one day. And the next day, we, Luke's still with him, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and we abode with him. Now, in case you forgot who Philip is, we're going to review his story because he is a tremendous example of the big things that God can do through you if you're willing to let him do little things through him first. It says in Acts 6, verses 1 to 5, in your next reference, that there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration of food, is what it's talking about. Then the twelve apostles called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Look ye out among you seven men, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word of God. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and our guy Philip here. 
So Philip was one of the seven men who weren't too proud to serve food to widows at tables so that the 12 apostles could continue to, to prayerfully study the scriptures and teach them. Now, those guys were spiritually overqualified to be overseeing the kitchen staff, folks. I mean, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were filled with the wisdom of God. And because of that, they could have decided that they were above being waiters, serving tables. But they didn't. And God Almighty takes note of that, folks. You know that because the next time you meet Philip in the book of Acts, God has made him an evangelist, as it says in Acts 8 and verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And if you know the story, from there God sent him to, to preach Christ to the Ethiopian eunuch as an evangelist. And all of this should remind you of something the Lord Jesus Christ said in your next reference in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, he said. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, so I will make thee ruler over many things. Folks, God waits to see if you're faithful in the little things of his work before he lets you take on the bigger responsibilities. But, let me be really clear about something here. There is nothing little about making sure that widows have enough to eat. Sue and Sandy lost their husband. I kept checking in on them to make sure they were doing okay financially, and I'll bet some of you did too. That is an important part of serving the Lord. It's only little in comparison with the care of men's souls that apostles and evangelists and pastors are involved in. But here's the thing about all of that. If you don't honor people serving any kind of tables, the Apostle Paul's got some advice for you in your next reference there in 1 Corinthians 12, 23, when he says that those members of the body, talking about the body of Christ, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. Hey, folks, we got plenty of people around here doing all of the unglamorous things that have to be done in a ministry so that I don't have to quit prayerfully studying the Word of God to do them. I mean, you might have seen me painting the railings out there on our church work day, but everything else that gets done around here gets done by people who deserve our honor and our high esteem, as that verse says. I know this. 
I know God esteems all the members of the body of Christ equally, and he rewards faithfulness in little things. Ray Siler has been faithfully doing little things at the BBF conference for years now, and when the BBF board of directors saw that, that was one of the reasons they asked him to be one of the board members. Back when I was a teenager, I was at a conference at our Grace Church in Madison, Wisconsin, and Pastor Stamp asked me to run and get something for him out of his car. I did, and I'm, I'm sure that he noticed that this long-haired teenager wasn't too proud to be his gopher. And that might be why he decided to hire me a few years later. That and maybe he heard how at that same conference, a couple of young men and I went door to door in the neighborhood inviting people to come to the meetings of the conference. All I know for sure is, you know that big guy you see teaching on BBS's TV show, Transformed by Grace? <laughs> Pastor Kevin is now the president of Brian Bible Society, but he started out as the typesetter for the Brian Searchlight. And on the weekends, he was the janitor who cleaned our bathrooms. So don't be too proud to serve the Lord in humble ways. But now, when the end of verse 8 there says that Paul decided to abide with Philip, you gotta wonder if he decided to stay with an evangelist instead of a prophet because he was sick and tired of the prophets telling him that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. <laughs> but, if that's why he decided to stay with Philip, he was out of luck. Because look what it says in verse 9 back in your Bible now in the very next verse. The same man, Philip, had four daughters, virgins, who were prophets, who did prophesy. <laughs> Poor Paul just couldn't get away from these prophets telling him not to go. Now it doesn't say they told him not to go, but you kind of have to assume that they did, because otherwise, why would Luke be telling you about prophets unless they were doing some prophesying, right? But Paul must have put them on the pay-no-mind list because, as we read on in our text, God sent him another prophet in verse 10, where it says that as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Now, when I was studying this passage, I had to pause and ask myself why Paul would spend what it says there many days there if he was hasting to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. You say, well, maybe he was making really good time, so he decided to, to slow down a little bit. But, you know, when you get ahead and you're in a big hurry, 
you don't slow down. You keep hurrying and you slow down when you get there, right? You don't dawdle on the way. And that so that can't be the reason. So then I start well maybe he was just waiting for another ship, like we saw earlier. And it could be as simple as that. Of course, some of you are probably thinking, Pastor, how thick-headed can you be? He was staying with a guy who had four single daughters. <laughs> and Paul himself was single, right? But I know why Paul was hurrying. And I don't think he would let personal interests slow him down. Now, I think what's happening here is that God was using those young ladies to get to Paul, to, to get him to think things through where maybe some of the male prophets couldn't. You, know, you women have more influence on us men than you know. I say that because I was thinking of how one time on Star Trek, when I was, I think it was actually a book I was reading about Star Trek. One day, Captain Kirk and Spock were marooned on some planet. And they heard one of the, the, the computers on that planet speaking out loud in a man's voice. And I'll never forget what they said. They said, well, evidently, this world has not yet learned that men pay more attention to a woman's voice than to a man's voice. Maybe that's why God has female prophets in the first place. I, I don't know. All I know for sure is you ladies shouldn't let being a woman make you think that God can't use you to influence people, influence even great men of God. But when these four girls couldn't talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem, God sends this Agabus guy in verse 10 to warn Paul some more, as it says in verse 11. And when he, Agabus, was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, first of all, we got to tell you that what a girdle is. A girdle was a belt, folks, as you see in your next reference in 2 Kings 1.8, where it's talking about a light to the prophet, and it says he was Girt, that's the verb form of the noun girdle. He was girt with a girdle of leather, a belt, about his loins. You know, those long flowing robes that men wore in those days had to be cinched up with something. And that something was evidently a strap of leather that we today would call a belt. Do you know they make stretchy belts now? Gone are the days where you got to 
poke a new hole in the belt to cinch up your burgeoning waistline just right, you know. Well, anyway, Agabus took Paul's belt and, and hog-tied his own hands and feet to illustrate what was going to happen to Paul if he persisted in going to Jerusalem. And if that sounds like a odd thing to do, I remind you that the prophets were always doing stuff like that to illustrate what they prophesied, as you see in your next reference in 1 Kings 11, 29-31. When Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in 12 pieces. Brand new garment, and he's ripping it up into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you, Jeroboam. And as you may know, that is exactly what happened. Solomon's son taxed the people too heavily. Ten of Israel's twelve tribes rebelled against him and joined up with Jeroboam. And Ahijah predicted that and he illustrated that it was going to happen. By the way, this is why preachers use illustrations to, to illustrate what they preach. It's because they know that some people need them to better understand what's being taught. And you know what? God knows that too. Look what God says in Hosea 12 in verse 10. God says, I have spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. In other words, God told the prophets what to tell the people and then told them how to illustrate it. And hey, if even a guy like the Apostle Paul could benefit from having God's uh, message illustrated for him, it probably helps all of us on some level or another, whether we know it or not. But what Agabus says here answers that question of why Paul kept sailing toward Jerusalem when those prophets back in verse 4 at the end there said that he should not go to Jerusalem. As Agabus makes clear here, it wasn't that God was forbidding Paul to go to Jerusalem. He was just telling him what would happen if he did go, that, that, that bonds and afflictions would abide him, as those other prophets said. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor, there in verse 4, that phrase, should not, when it says they said he should not go to Jerusalem, that sure sounds like God was forbidding Paul to go. But... 
Look how those two words, that exact phrase, is used in your next reference when those three kings went to the Lord's baby shower <laughs> and, and gave him the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. It says in Matthew 2.12, being warned of God in the dream that they, and there's those two words, should not return to King Herod, they've departed into their own country another way. Now, I think that that phrase, should not, there, was more of a warning than a commandment. I don't think they would have been disobedient to God if they decided to go back and tell King Herod that the real king of Israel had been born. God just knew that if they did, it wasn't going to end well for them because King Herod didn't want to hear about any other kings of Israel. He was the king of Israel. And I think that's what the prophets meant when they told Paul that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He was just telling them, if you go, it's not going to end well for you. So why does Paul still want to go? Is he some kind of glutton for punishment? No! Don't forget what we said. He wanted to get there for Pentecost. Pentecost was one of the seven feasts that every Jew had to attend every year. And Paul wanted to be there to preach to as many Jews as he could at one time. Even if he had to get beaten and arrested, bonds and afflictions, to do it. You might compare all this to what Paul told Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now listen, Paul wasn't trying to tell young Timothy here not to live a godly life. <laughs> he was just telling him what would happen if he did. And the Spirit was just telling Paul what would happen if he went to Jerusalem. But Paul didn't care. He didn't care what the consequences would be for serving the Lord. Of course, his friends did. <laughs> and they begged him not to go. In your next verse back in your Bible now, in verse 12. When we, Luke says, when we heard these things, both we and they of that place, begged Paul, besought him not to go to Jerusalem. Once again, that word we means that Luke was one of the guys trying to talk Paul out of going there out of their great love for him. And I'm sure they meant well, but they were just making it harder for Paul to be faithful. As you see in verse 13, when Paul answered and said, What mean ye to weep and break my heart like this? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's what it comes to. Now here I should point out that Paul wasn't just ready to die. I think he expected to. Remember what he told the Ephesians elders just a chapter ago in your next reference in Acts 20, 25? He said, I know 
that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Well, how did he know that? I think he really thought he was going to have to pay with his life for the chance to preach to those Jews at Pentecost. And here his friends are trying to talk him out of it. That ought to remind you of what happened when the Lord told Peter that he would have to die at Jerusalem. Look at Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter, he meant well too, but he took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But the Lord said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. The Lord said, If I want to die serving God, then that's my business. Don't be trying to talk me out of it. Kind of reminds me of years ago, I told a friend of mine, I drink one of those five-hour energy drinks every day. And he said, well, those things are bad for you. And I said, well, drinking too much coffee is bad for you too, but I was willing to take the risk to serve the Lord because it helped me to study better. Now, I'm not saying that we should be irresponsible or when it comes to how we serve the Lord. I'm just saying that at some point we got to say what Paul said in your next reference in Acts 20, 24. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I received of the Lord and testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now you compare that to what the devil told God in your next reference. Satan, in Job 2.4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give to save his life. That's what the devil thinks of us, folks. He thinks we value our lives more than, value, than we value serving the Lord. But he found out that Job was made of better stuff, didn't he? And Paul was too. Paul was willing to give his life for the Lord, not give all that he had to save his life like the devil's talking about there. And you know, you can be that way too. You can be like the guy that Paul talks about in Philippians 2.25, the guy named Epaphroditus. Paul told the Philippians, he's your messenger. He's the guy that carried the epistle to them and and their letters to him, and he that ministered to my, he, he's my, he's your messenger, he's my gopher. And he was sick nigh unto death for the work of Christ. He was nigh unto death, uh, not regarding his life. That old boy nearly worked himself to death by being Paul's gopher and their messenger. And you women can get in on this too. Serving the Lord nigh unto death. That's not just some old boys club thing here. Look at your next reference. When Haman tried to kill all the Jews in the book of Esther. Look what Esther says in Esther 4.16. I will go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, 
And if I perish, I perish. You know the story. You know in those days, you couldn't go just go barging into the king to ask a favor. Even if you were the king's wife, you, you had to wait for the king to summon you. But Esther was willing to risk death to save her people. And Aquila's wife, Priscilla, had that same spirit. Look, look what Paul says about her in Romans 16, 3 and 4. Priscilla and Aquila, they're my helpers in Christ Jesus, and they have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So ladies, if you want Christians thanking God for you, you can't always play it safe in life, can you? Especially depending on the how rough the times that you live on, live in are. Well, I guess Paul was finally able to, to help his friends see that you can't always play it safe when it comes to serving the Lord, because in verse 14 now, back in your Bible, it says that when he would not be persuaded, we stopped trying to talk him out of it. We ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now, they weren't just saying, well, I guess whatever's going to happen will happen. <laughs> they already knew what was going to happen. They already knew if Paul went to Jerusalem, he was going to be beaten and arrested. They were just saying, if that's the will of the Lord, then the will of the Lord be done. Let Paul go and get himself beaten and arrested. But what they didn't say was, okay, Paul, you go and get yourself beaten and arrested. We'll stay here and not get beaten and arrested. <laughs> they decided to go with him. At least that's what it says in verse 15 back in your Bible. And after those days, we took up our carriages, Luke says, and we went with him up to Jerusalem. And once again, that word we means that after Luke couldn't talk him out of going, he, he and the rest of Paul's friends decided to go and get beaten and arrested at Jerusalem with Paul. And that ought to remind you of what happened in John 11, verses 7 to 16. Saith he, speaking of the Lord, saith he to his disciples one day, let's go into Judea again. And his disciples said unto him, uh, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone you in Judea. Goest thou thither again? And later on, when they couldn't talk him out of it, then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. When Thomas knew he couldn't talk the Lord out of going to a place where they might kill him, he turned to the other apostles and said, Let's go die with him. And that's what Luke and the boys are doing here. If they couldn't talk Paul out of, out of going to die, they were going to go die with him. Listen, God Almighty could use more people of that kind of spirit, folks. 
the kind we read about in your next reference in 2 Samuel 15.21 where this guy says to King David, As the Lord liveth, and as my Lord the King liveth, surely in what place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant, where, wherever you go, if you're going to live or die, I'm going to be there right there with you. You know, when you see a believer living a godly life, you can either say to him, uh, you go and get yourself persecuted if you want to, but I'm going to sit here and not get persecuted by not living a godly life. You can do that if you want to. But don't forget, the only kind of persecution you and I are likely to get is the kind that Ishmael gave Isaac, the, the mocking kind. So be like Paul. Be willing to pay the price. You do want to be like Paul, don't you? But now, those carriages there in verse 15, those weren't the kind of carriages people rode in. Don't picture Paul riding in some fancy carrot like Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind after they had all that money. No, that's talking about their the things they carried, their luggage, their suitcases. When you fly on a plane these days, you can either check your bags or carry them on the plane with you, right? And what do they call those? Your carry-ons. In the Bible, they're called carriages which is actually a better word, because you know the word carry-on is something that vultures and, and, and <laughs> eat. <laughs> carry-on, right? But now here you look at that and say, well, wait a minute. Anytime anybody did any traveling in the Bible, they had luggage, of course. So how come, how come Luke goes out of his way to mention their baggage here? Why? Well, I think it's because of what was in the baggage. You see, folks, they were filled with money. The money that Paul had collected from the Gentile churches for what it talks about in your last reference there in Romans 15, 26, the poor saints at Jerusalem. And that tells you just how much money Paul had collected. We're talking suitcases full of money, trunks full of cash, and they had a plan about how they were going to distribute it to those poor saints when they got here. They brought along a guy to help them with that, as you see in verse 16, uh, back in your Bible now. These aren't just incidental details that Luke has given us here. It says in verse 16, There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them a guy named Mason of Cyprus, an old disciple, a guy who'd been saved a long time, with whom we should lodge when we get to Jerusalem. They brought along a guy who lived in Jerusalem, who'd been a disciple for so long that all the other disciples in Jerusalem knew him and knew where he lived. And when word got out that the Apostle Paul was distributing money from Mason's house, they would all know where to go to get it. 
And if you don't think those poor saints were glad that Paul had come, look at the last verse of your text there in verse 17. It says, when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Of course they did. They considered Paul to be a godsend. Because that's what he was. He came to minister to the poor saints of Jerusalem. But now, here I have to point out, Paul was not bound and determined to go to Jerusalem just to help some poor people with food. Don't forget, he was going there to preach to that huge crowd of Jews at Pentecost, knowing that when those unsaved Jews heard about the money he was giving the saved Jews, that they would be much more apt to listen to him, what he said about Jesus Christ. Don't forget, all they knew about Paul was he was this, this dirty turncoat traitor who turned his back on Judaism and was out preaching that, that, that phony Messiah, Jesus Christ, to all those icky Gentiles out there, you know. But if they saw that phony Messiah's Gentiles helping their people, well, they might think, well, maybe that Messiah is our Messiah after all. And Paul knew all this, and he knew it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to preach to that many people with that kind of background. And he was willing to die to take advantage of that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And in closing, you never know when your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is going to come to serve the Lord. But I know this. The only way to be sure that you'll take advantage of your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve the Lord is if, in the meantime, you take advantage of all the smaller opportunities you get to serve the Lord. We say we pray about that. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do pray about that. We pray that you'd help us to take these things to heart. We pray that you would teach us, lay it on our hearts to be faithful in the smallest areas of service, to be faithful in the humblest ways that come before us to serve you. We know that these are crucially important in the ministry that you have made of the body of Christ where we're all working together to glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.